The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in December 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the lyricist, composer, and writer, William Finn. Hi, Bill. Hello, John. A couple of shows in, in your catalog, the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. It's been running on Broadway since April of 2005. A trilogy of shows that you did when you were... Uh, working with Playwrights Horizons, In Trousers, a 1979 one-act musical. March of the Falsettos came along in 1981, and in 1990, Falsetto Land. The latter two, March of the Falsettos and Falsetto Land, were joined in 1992 to become Falsettos on Broadway. A New Brain, another one of your shows, Romance and Hard Times, and many others we'll talk about, as many as we can. Wonderful. Welcome. I guess we should start with the current work, the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, which was developed way, way, way off-Broadway, became an off-Broadway success, and later transferred to Broadway. How did that come into being for you? My dear friend Wendy Washington called me and said that her weekend nanny was in an improvised sketch downtown, and... uh, that there were some interesting things in it. It was unfinished and a crazy little thing, but um, she thought I, I might like it. And if I didn't like it, I had students and they could get interested in it, she thought. And I, I listened to it. Re- Rebecca Feldman conceived it, and, and Dan Fogler and Sarah Salzberg, who are in it now, uh, were in it then. And I saw this tape of it, and it was pretty wonderful. And, and, uh, I knew how to make it into a show. For the first time in my life, there was a moment of clarity, and um, I knew how to make it into a show. But was it a case where Wendy said you should see this because it's something that you might want to expand She, she wasn't sure. She wasn't sure. She didn't know whether – she wasn't sure. She, you know, it, it was an, it was an early, early moment of development. So she wasn't – you know, she didn't know how much I would be interested in, in – pulling it along but it had very good bones i thought and and when i said to rebecca feldman who conceived it that i know this wonderful writer rachel schenken to write the book who was a student of mine at nyu and she said uh, great and and they got along and and uh obviously it, that was a good match and so that's what happened but it was sort of different from certainly many of the shows that you're known for they were really all your creation it totally. was your story so oh that's so why this is so so like successful i'm sure <laughs> um, you know because it's it's much less dark and uh oh it was it was t- it was kind of fun we we wrote a lot of it up in um <clears throat> great barrington massachusetts we we did it at the barrington stage in sheffield and it was the middle of winter when we were writing it. I felt like I was Jack Nicholson in The Shining. I was never getting out of out of my room. We were we were writing about twelve hours a day, and we were, we couldn't go anywhere. There was so much snow that winter. It was so dangerous to drive. It was so cold outside. All we did was write and uh, kill each other, really. You know. So, and by we we had a show. It, amazingly, we were up there for. Um, a month of rehearsals, and at the end of it, we had a show. We 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 then added three more songs to the production, but basically, it was there. Well, when the show was being developed at, at Great Barrington, the the various actors were each kind of asked to kind of develop their character, kind of co- well, with, they, with they, they were they were them. contributing. Uh-huh. They were certainly contributors. Right. I mean, the improvisators right. were m- more so. Um, Dan Fogler and Sarah Salzberg and Jay Reese. 
um, who who were in it were all enor- enormous uh, co- contributors. Well, when you were writing the songs for each of them to sing, yeah. how did you develop their own individual voices? Did you work with the actors to develop the Never, songs? Never, no. I just knew I had, with those with those guys, I didn't have a whole lot. <laughs> I kept it very sim- as simple as I could. You uh-huh. know, it wasn't a big range. Uh, the songs I wrote at the end, the last two songs I wrote were my Unfortunate Direction and the love, the I Love You song, which is kind of the big musical statement in there. I said, I've got to get some songs in here. You, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I finally, I'm just going to pull the best singers in the show and write a song for them. That's why, that's how the I Love You song happened. So when you were writing the songs, were you thinking of the actors and their abilities, or were you thinking of the characters and their personalities, well, both. or both? Uh, obviously. But, but I, the constraints were very well known, and it, it helps the piece. I mean, people can sing this in many of my other shows. I, I expected bravura singers to sing bravura songs. This one, they're not as bravura because I, I knew knew the actors I had to work with. So the constraints helped the piece. It certainly will help the piece when it's done all over the country because people can sing these songs. And also, since the characters are supposed to be 12 years old, the songs from necessity, I guess, have to be somewhat simple. Well, I guess, though I'm sure there, people have written complex 12-year-old <laughs> songs. I'm, I'm not sure. You said a moment ago that when you saw the show, you know, you, you sort of knew what you could do with it. What was it that you saw that specifically appealed to you, and, and what, what did you think? Because when you saw it, it was certainly not a musical. It was, it was a play. It was a sketch. What, what made you think these people should sing? Um, they were so extravagant. The, the, the few that I felt we were going to use were so extravagant that I thought there was a lot of room for music. Um, they were peculiar. They were touching. They were crazy. It, it, was, it was, you know, it's a very goofy show and it's a very funny show. And And I felt that people were not going to come, as they do to most of my shows, for the music. They'll be coming for the humor, a lot of the humor and the characters and everything. And the music was there just to make everything sing a little, just raise the ante a little. But also a lot of the humor is in the music itself. I mean, some of your lyrics and the well, songs. how lovely of you, John. <laughs> but, but it's true. It is. I mean, were, were you thinking along those lines when you were writing it? I that, write funny. That's just the way I write. Uh, just um, comes naturally. Well, no. I mean, I, I well, it, it comes naturally because I'm more comfortable writing funny. The thing is, I'm, I'm a, a ridiculous optimist, and I often just write up, you know. I'm, I'm not interested in the sad, sad little story. I'm, I just don't get it. For the, me, I you know, there's enough sadness. I don't need it when I pay a lot of money when I go to the theater. Do, and you, I'm in little seats and so uncomfortable. <laughs> I just I want something that's going to elevate me and make me have fun. Mm. You know? Do you have a favorite character in the show? Oh, maybe Coney Bear. Uh-huh. You know, uh, Jesse Ferguson. Just when I knew that, um, I said when we started auditioning, you know, we we found out who could sing, and and basically Dan Fogler could sing, and and Sarah Salzberg could sing, and unfortunately the other ones, other people could sing, but I needed them to sing better. They were characters that I needed really good voices on, like uh, Rona Lisa Pretty, the, the Lisa Howard character. Um, the, a lovely actress was was doing it. Unfortunately, 
I knew that was one of the the characters I I knew needed a voice, and and she sings a lot in the show, and so she couldn't sing as well as we needed her. But um, what was the question? It I'm doesn't sure. matter. <laughs> I was asking if you had a favorite uh, character. You said oh Cody yeah, Bear. the Cody Bear. So uh, when we saw that Jesse Tyler Ferguson came in, and he's been one of my favorites since I saw him on on the town, and I said, you know, I've never done this. <laughs> He, he came in, and we didn't know what the show was. We didn't know the characters. We were going to build them around this cast. And he came in. I said, you got a part. And everyone looked at me like, you can't do that. We have to see everyone. I said, well, he has a part. He, he definitely has a part in the show. So um, he was – and he was as brilliant as anyone I've ever seen. So. As the show progressed, certainly from – off-off-Broadway sketch to Barrington stage. At what point did your frequent collaborator, James Lapine, become part of the process? And that was that really only you at the, bringing only him Only at in? the very end. Mm-hmm. I resisted. I resisted because I thought, oh, I like the show the way it is up in, in Great Barrington, and I'm, I'm not sure that Lapine likes it as much as I do. So I kept on, when he, when he said he wanted to direct it, I kept on saying, well, I don't, I'm not sure you're the right director. How much do you like this show? You know, because I don't want to change. There's some stuff we got to change, but I don't want to change that much. And he finally, obviously, I mean, and how great was his direction? And what did he change? He he just made everything a little better. Hmm. So there was no major change, just kind of tweaking? Well, we added we, the, the section with, oh, it doesn't matter, but there was one section that I kept on saying, this isn't right, this isn't right, and... Lapine and Rachel figured out a solution to it uh, one day when I wasn't there. And I came in and I said, oh, my God, this is so great. And that's just, you know, it's what a director, and especially Lapine, because he's a librettist, can do. Well, it seems that we should take a moment and play something from the show. Um, why don't we play the opening number? But first, can you tell us how you crafted the opening number, how that came together? I probably can't. All I know is that I wanted a number that was going to sound young and inviting and delightful, and and I was very. I'm very. This is a number that I'm very pleased with. My opening numbers, I'm usually not pleased with. This opening number delights me no end. So let's hear it. That's the opening number of the title song from the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, setting the stage. Was that the first? Was that the first number you wrote, or did you write that out of sequence? I wrote that was. I wanted to see, so I I told Rebecca Feldman, I said, "Let me write two or three numbers, see if I can write this." Um, and I wrote half of that number. I wrote half of my friend the dictionary, and I called her up and I said, "Yep, I can write it." So um, (laughs) that was it. You were off to the races. Yeah. Well, let's go back now, Bill. You come out of Williams College, which seems to have an extraordinary uh, track record of great theater artists, certainly to name but two of your predecessors there, the playwright A.R. Gurney and, of course, Stephen Sondheim. Were you already writing... Oh, you could too. There's <laughs> another. Um, were you already writing musicals when you were in college? When did you really plunge into this? I was writing songs on the guitar, um, not not theater songs, though I thought they could always go in theater because I, I get, was a theater baby, sort of. But I was writing folk songs on the guitars. 
So you, were you interested in theater at that point, or did you think you were going to have more life in folk music? No, I thought it, it was it was all theater. All th- I had I had yeah, I, I used to design costumes in history uh-huh. class for these characters. I remember. So after leaving college, how did you get well, your start? In, in writing? college, I wrote three musicals. Oh, okay. Um, after my freshman year, in, in, in I was in the freshman review at Williams, and a guy named Charlie Rubin. Um, a wonderful writer for television and teaches at NYU too, um, asked if I would uh, write a musical with him. And I said, well, I, I, I don't play piano that well. He said, well, you have the whole summer to learn. <laughs> and so I, I, that's what I did. Um, and I used to play the piano at the Williams Club for hours and hours every day, um, in addition to washing windows down at PS 12 or 19 or something downtown. And um, and I, I learned to play, and that was our first show. It was called Sizzle. And the second show I wrote was uh, based on an odd Aubrey Beardsley novel under the hill called Rape. And the third thing I wrote was a thing called Scrambled Eggs, where I no longer was directing, but a member of the faculty directed, and I was in it. And uh, that was the third, third show I wrote. Did you want to be a performer? Did you see yourself as a performer? No. Performing is what I hated. Just I only would perform when no one else could do what I was doing. I was the original Marvin in Trousers. Well, I was going to ask. You know, we, I saw that, that in those first eight performances at Playwrights Horizons, you were— And Andre Bishop said to me, you can either be in it or direct it. And he assumed I wanted to be in it, and they'd find a, a competent director. And I said, oh, Andre, I, I, I hate acting. I'll, I'll, I direct He said, no, no, you're making a mistake. I said, well, you know, you're making me choose. I said, are, are you making me choose? He said, yeah. I said, so I'll direct it. He said, you're still making a mistake. Anyway, Chip Zion did it, and uh, it was a production I liked a lot. Well, we seem to have gotten there very fast. How did you get – I mean, obviously, that was a major step for I you. I used to that put reaction. on shows in my apartment. Um, actually, I – you know, I um, had three – I worked with three women, Allison Frazier, who was from Natick, my hometown, and I saw her in, in a high school show when I went back to my high school to see a show. Um, Mary Testa, who was in in a show, I was commissioned by the University of Rhode Island right out of school, and I plucked her from the chorus, and I made her one of the leads of the show. And someone else named Kay Pesek, who was uh, a housewife in Illinois, and she was one of my um, singers at Williams. Hmm. And, and we used to sing. I, actually, I would buy, like, chicken wings, and and they would cook food and clean my apartment, and I would... I would write what became in trousers, and uh, because we were all working during the day, and the only time I had to write is when they were there cleaning or and cooking, and then they would sing it. So I wrote it for one man and three women. This is why how in trousers started, and um, we did we did shows in my apartment. Sometimes um, I remember one show started at eleven o'clock. And one show started at 2 in the morning because the guy who was coming up from Washington to see it kept on calling me from various points in New Jersey saying, I'm there. And he, he arrived totally drunk. But um, 
it, it, that we did a show for a, a drunk man and some friends of his at 2 o'clock in the morning. So you were doing these shows not just for your own amusement. You were inviting outsiders to come to We were inviting outsiders, uh-huh. yes. And that's Andre Bishop had seen an earlier show that I had done in my apartment, and he sent Ira Weitzman. All these names. Do people need to know? All these names. Ira Weitzman. Um, and Ira came up to me at the end and said, we're starting a musical theater program at Playwrights Horizons doing four composers and lyricists is what we've done for playwrights. Would you like to be the inaugural show? And I said, I'll, I'll have to let you know. <laughs> you had to think about it? I had. And, how, and then when did you let him know? Uh, weeks later, because I, I, there was someone else who was interested in doing it. And believe me, they've never put on another show. I, I, I was so lucky. <laughs> it's so lucky that I was with Playwrights Horizons when it was the hottest theater around. Well, you made the right choice there. And do you feel you made the right choice about directing rather than acting at this um, point in your, in your life? Uh, I was a better actor than I was a director. Oh, okay. But it was not something I liked. So, so you've stuck to the songwriting pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Now, the timing of In Trousers, those original workshops and presentations were in the late 70s. It was yes. first with you. 70, 79. Was right. it 78 and 79? And then March of the Falsettos came well, only see, two what years happened? later. We did, we, we did, yeah, that's when I used to, well, I write all the time. I just... Uh, then I was just pushing it out but um, because I was so desperate but In Trousers started when we would rehearse from 11 to 3 in the morning at Playwrights Rise and we had to get to Playwrights Rise we had to walk from the subway down to between 9th and 10th Avenue and Mary would say hello to all the homeless people because she knew all the homeless people and otherwise it was a harrowing experience but and we rehearsed in the freezing uh, Playwrights Horizons because they really couldn't afford the heat at, at that <laughs> hour of the night. Um, but we performed in the the upstairs theater, and then a show fell out. And so they, they brought us downstairs. We were on the main stage where we got our first reviews. Well, In Trousers was the first, March of the Falsettos the second, and Falsetto right. Land the third of the trilogy. True. Was it conceived as a trilogy to begin with? Was that well, your intention? Well, I always talked about there being a trilogy, not uh-huh. knowing what would happen. Uh-huh. But uh, and I didn't know what would happen. I we did, you know, in trousers, which was not, except for Marilyn Stasio in the New York Post, who said it was a cause for celebration. It did not get too many wonderful reviews. Um, and so your first thought was then, well, I need to write more of it. The as a first result. thought, my first thought was. I don't know what I'm going to write, but I better write quickly if I'm going to call myself a writer because I'm approaching 30 and I don't have that much time. So, because in trials I did when I was 26, 27. And March the Fall Setters came out when I was 29. And that's that was where I got my first good review in The Times by Frank Rich, and, well, and that changed everything. When you were writing In Trousers, did you have in mind where you were going to go with the next two, or did you then have to... Like, Absolutely re- re- not. No. I had ap- n- no idea. And they, actually, Playwrights Horizons wanted me to write, pardon me, wanted me to write March the Falsettos right away. And I said, well, I, that's ridiculous, and then I'm going to have to repeat what happened in my... It was integrated, and then it was so brilliantly staged by Lapine. And really, the development of March of the Falsettos, and, and Lapine gets book credit with me on that, is because without him, the show wouldn't have happened. He really, uh, he, he, he saw it in a way I didn't see it. He, How, explain that. Well, he said to me, um, 
I work well with children. Could you put a child in the show? I said, can it be Marvin's son? He said, I really don't care. I just think there should be a child. Now, whether he knew or not, whether this was brilliance on his part, I have no idea. But it uh, certainly worked out well. So in your conception of the show, it's funny, I was about to ask you, you know, this the show almost seems ahead of its time in dealing with issues of gay parenting. Uh-huh. That wasn't even something you said, that's it an issue I want to deal with. It, you were responding no, no, to a no, suggestion. No, 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 I was talking, I was, there, when I wrote it in, in an early version, it was there was gay parenting, but we did never saw the child. Uh huh. Well, for our radio audience who may not be familiar with the three shows, Marvin is a central character throughout the whole story arc. All three. Uh-huh. What what is the basic storyline as it progresses? Oh God, I hate telling storylines. I'm not so good. Well, let me let me try to help uh-huh. out. It is the story of a man named Marvin who has left in in trousers. Is a little more impressionistic. It's about his relationship with women in his life. Yes. Then and when he we, says goodbye to them, that that, that that's. That's the act of... That's uh, when he leaves Trina, his right. wife, in, in in trousers. And then in March of the Falsettos, uh, he is now in a relationship with a man named Wizzer. But he wants to maintain a strong relationship not only with his child, Jason, but in fact with his ex-wife, who he still... Well, yes, more with his child yeah. and, and the wife because he realizes that he has to accommodate the, the wife in order to, to have the relationship with the child. I think... But he does want a relationship w- with the wife in a, in a weird way. You know, he, just, he he wants everyone to love him, which is part of the problem, uh, part of his, his big problem. And um, he's not that lovable, which is another part of the problem. <laughs> and then by the third play in the, in the trilogy, the third musical, uh, we're dealing simultaneously with Jason's bar mitzvah, a major event in a young boy's life, and ultimately the fact that Wizard uh, contracts AIDS yes, and is so ill, and how this, how that affects the bar mitzvah, the bar mitzvah, and the, and the, the, and the, the family life. and the right, people right, around right. them. So it's it's an extraordinary piece. Did you ever conceive that they would be? all performed as part of a single evening. Oh, that, were... that I knew is, is what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was written, in fact, it was written, Falsetto Land was written originally as a second act, and then three weeks before we went into rehearsal, James Lapine called me and said, I think you're going to get killed if you do this as a second act because people are going to think you're, this is the only thing you can do. He said, write this as a new show. So I had to write the opening number. I had to write various things that I hadn't written quickly, and I, I was furious. But he was right, you know. But you, but there's certainly in production, there was a gap of nine years between March of the Falsettos and Falsetto. Well, I was working on other shows, but mm-hmm. which happened, you know, more or less. But uh, it, it was just weirdness. It was, it was um, oh, I don't know. Hmm. Well... Uh, when when the two shows eventually transferred to Broadway, March of Falsettos and Falsetto Land becoming Falsettos, you left out in trousers. Why the decision not to include that? Well, as part I incorporated of what happened in, in trousers in, in March of the Falsettos. There's a uh-huh. song, uh, Love is Blind, where we tell everything that happened already in it. And then we did uh, a song that was written later for In Trousers called I'm Breaking Down, was kind of the big hit of. Uh, falsettos and that song was uh 
interpolated into that. So when you combined Mars of the Falsettos and Falsetto Land into the one show, Falsettos, what sort of adjustments did you have to make? Any new material? Very few. We cut a, li- we cut a little material. Uh-huh. That's all. But not, nothing new added to I it? Added, I fixed some lyrics that I, that I uh, wasn't happy with. Why don't we play a song from one of the shows, perhaps Falsetto Land? Okay, it's, yeah, this, the, why don't we play, what about the baseball game? Where they're all they're all watching Jason play baseball, including the lesbians from next door. And, um, you know, there's, there's Marvin, there's his wife, there's her uh, husband and Marvin's ex-psychiatrist, Mendel, and there's Wizard and the lesbians from next door and Jason. From March of the Falsettos and Falsetto Land, united on Broadway as Falsettos, the baseball game. Bill, for real diehard fans of musical theater, the people who live and die by this stuff, there is the the now somewhat legendary production of which united the shows up at Hartford Stage, which, uh, in all disclosure, I was a part of that production uh, in the staff of the theater. But um, that was a chance where... Your frequent collaborator, Graciela Danielle, who really, along with Lapine, is is the the other artist that mm-hmm. you've most worked with as Absolutely. a director, had her take on the show. And I'm wondering if you can talk just about the different qualities in Lapine's production versus Grazi's production. Yeah, they were very, they were very, very different. Grazi's production was danced. Uh, I don't <clears throat> often have dances in my show because I don't kind of write dance music and. I guess it's not throbbing. I don't know. It's not pulsing. I don't know. I don't it, that, but that production was danced, and there was also, and I think, the most telling moment of that that show was the the final moment when you you saw a tiny little scrap of wizard's uh, wizard's quilt, and then the whole stage um, opened up to this huge quilt. It, it was bre- as breathtaking of a thing as I've ever seen in my life. And and that last, um, you know, it, it it wasn't as if you could use that last uh, image on any other show because it had, the whole show had been building up to that moment. It was it was a, a brilliantly conceived show by Grazi. And do you? But it wasn't as funny. I mean, for me, and and this is my own Michigas, but I, I'm. I'm I, I I need the laughs. You know, I write for the laughs. I sit working to get laughs. And it wasn't as funny because it was people were dancing. People were moving. There, there was a whole thing and and I prefer people sitting or just getting the laughs. Um <clears throat> so when it was supposed to be done at Lincoln Center and and then there was a a problem um with the main stage another show went in there and we didn't know that it was going to happen, and and I I just happened to be walking. I was working with the Weislers on another show on Barry and Friend Weisler, and I said, "No, well, just something unbelievable happened today." Blah 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 blah. And Friend said, "And this never happens." Friend says, "We'll produce it. We'll do the Lapine version. We will produce it." I said, do you have to check with anyone? She said, I'm the producer. I have to check with Barry. But Barry, I will call in in 20 minutes, and I guarantee you he'll want to produce it. So we'll produce it. So, you know, uh, whatever else you hear about the Weislers, uh, they kind of saved my life that day. You alluded uh, a little earlier to 
the show, the work that came in between March of the Falsettos and Falsetto Land. And it's really, the there was one piece which got produced two different times under two mm-hmm. different names, uh, America Kicks Up Its Heels and right. Romance in Hard Times. Right. Um, can you talk about that project? Because it's one that, for anybody who looks at your history, they see the production, but they're, well, they've not seen the work. No, but I, I think, actually... Merkin Recital Hall wanted to do a concert version of that, and we just had. I threw out all the music. Literally I threw it threw out. I threw out all the music. I threw out all the orchestrations. And this is for a show that was produced at Playwrights Horizons once all and at the, the public music, theater. All the orchestrations. Bruce Coughlin, who orchestrated it the second time, has has uh, some of the score. And so we're trying to piece it back together. Why would you throw out a show that you? I guess on for I was so long? frustrated, Howard. I guess you were. <laughs> but we, you don't often throw out our children. Well, hmm. <laughs> I, I got a little crazy. I think. Uh, how about a new brain? How did that come about? Um, I had a, I had a brain problem that happened right after the Tonys. Actually, no the, relation. What, what, was there? No, the year. <laughs> the, actually, not. the year before. The, when, when, when is this? Okay, what year? the year that Falsettos was done. What, uh, what year was that? Ninety-two. 92? Yeah. Um, I kept on. I couldn't see. I couldn't see a lot out of my eyes. My there, they kept on getting more and more white in my eyes, and I would collapse kind of on the street mm. or collapse in the theater, and and just, and then I would. If, once I got up, I'd be fine. Hmm. Um, and this happened for about eight months. And finally, people said to uh, people said to me after three months, you have to see a th- psychiatrist because everyone was sure it was psychosomatic. I was turning forty, hadn't had a show on Broadway. I, I the, the great reputation I had, I kind of screwed around with with the, those uh, romance and hard times. America kicks up its heels. I felt I just killed you know killed a whole career and. Uh, we all assumed it was I was just having problems. Finally, I had called my eye doctor, and um, his n- nurse said, "Is this an emergency?" And I said, "No." <laughs> so <laughs> she said, "Well, you could have a a, a a reservation in in two months." So when I got in there to him, I said, "Listen, you know, if there's something wrong with me, I, I've called. I this has been this is two month old." And she's so mean, this nurse of yours. And he said, well, you'll be fine. And then he looks and he leaves the room and he comes back later. He says, you have an appointment tomorrow at a neuro-ophthalmologist. Anything you have must be canceled. And um, don't be nervous. Half he tells you that. <laughs> I'm sure it's nothing. I said, are you sure it's nothing? He said, no, I'm not sure it's nothing. I think it's something very bad. But we cannot tell until... You know, and until you see the special. Yes, yeah. until and and they gave me a cat scan, and the guy who gave me the cat scan before I got the cat scan said to me, um, "I will tell you afterwards. Everything's fine." And so when it was finished, I said, "Is everything fine?" He says, "You're going to have to go back to your doctor to find out." Hmm. I said, "Oh God!" So we went to the doctor. I went to my neuro ophthalmologist, and basically he told me I had an inoperable brain tumor. Hmm. And and um, Lapine, any time I spoke with him after that, said, I hope you're writing things down. I said, you write things down. I'm dying. So um, this was the show that was written from that whole 
whole thing. They say no. Uh, write what you know about is, is, <laughs> is taking it rather to the extreme. Well, we, we, <laughs> and we made up a lot of it. But um, it was I, what I had was what the guy had on Six Feet Under. Have you, have you ever seen, did mm-hmm. you ever see sure. Six Feet Under? Yeah, the, on it, HBO. An AVM, an arterial venal, venous malformation yeah. or venal malformation, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what I had. And you either die from it or you recover. And uh, they they had to... Um, seal my brain with like glue, crazy glue, basically. Well, obviously, you're here more than a decade later, talking happily about it. Well, so. it's 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 still it's still with me every day. But, but how uh, how quickly did you, after you recovered, did you go to work and say, well, okay, it, now it, I am? It, it was write weird, this. you know, because I was in the hospital for so long, and then I was recovering for so long. When I got home to my studio, when I got to my studio. Basically, all I had to do was put my hand, and this has never happened to me, and it'll never happen to me again. I basically put my hand over the piano, and the songs came out, and I was just there to take them down. Wow. Um, do you think that show had a different outlook than your earlier work? Did were you a different person writing that show? Oh, than I, I think I think absolutely. It's you know many people think it's the same sort of thing. Again, I, you know, I, I do not – I don't write depressing things. I don't write about people giving up. It, it, it makes me crazy. I don't write about victims. Um, and so this was all about someone who was a victim and who these terrible things were happening to and was just – totally kind of happy and indeed but he and he had didn't have the control whether he was going to live through it there was, was no not control. totally in his hands no no yeah well we should listen to something from a new brain we'll well, let's listen know. to a song that has nothing to do with the illness and just as one of the prettiest songs i wrote and norm lewis sings it beautifully uh say i'd rather be sailing can you tell us how it how it plays into new brain uh the, the guy's lover uh is not around when this all happens, and they have to, they have to find him. He's um, he's off sailing, and so he comes back and sings this song, uh, this very beautiful song. A song written, music, and lyrics both by William Finn, our guest today on Downstage Center from the show A New Brain. There have been now a couple of reviews of your songs. Uh, Originally down at Joe's Pub, Infinite Joy, and more recently up in Hartford at Theater Works, Make Me a Song. Well, Infinite Joy was just done as a bunch of songs, and Billy Rosenfield, who had uh, recorded some of my other stuff, said, we have to record this. Uh, After saying, I have no interest in recording this. Um, Because it was really fun. It was just a lot of fun. And uh, we were so lucky to get some of that stuff recorded. Stephen DeRosa doing the ball game, which you've heard, it, but he did all the characters. And uh, and it was just a great time. Mary Testa and Carolee Carmel is spectacular. But when your songs, certainly some of Infinite Joy were songs that were not within specific shows. They were things that you'd written, but some of them were taken out of the narrative context and certainly make me a song, the new show that was up in Hartford. Um They've they've been pieced together in different ways. How do you, as someone who writes such strong, through-composed narrative musicals, how do you feel about when those shows are then put into different settings and, and taken out of their original context? Rob Ruggiero, who directed the show Make Me a Song in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, 
I begged him not to do it. I, I just thought, you know, this is only done for people who are really old. And I may be fat, but I'm just not that old. And I just thought, please, don't do it. And, and, and you know, I, I just thought he would do too much. And I just wanted... I like the song sung. And I just... But I saw it. One day I, I woke up. I was in Pittsfield curating a bunch of shows, producing a bunch of shows for the Barrington stage, a bunch of new musicals. And I said, Rob, I'm going to uh, see the show today. Can you get me a ticket? He said, yeah, sure. So I was there, and, I, and the person who drove me up, I said, listen, this is not going to be good, so don't look at me. Don't start grimacing. Don't breathe heavy. It's not going to be good. We're just going to sit here. We're going to say we love it, and then we're going to leave. Um, <laughs> and it started, and I... I, I loved it. I loved it from the first second, and I was startled. And I kept on saying, don't tell me you hate this, because I love this. Did you know, had there been any consultation in terms of what songs were being Rob, used, what order Rob they asked, were done in? Rob asked me, and I said, I, I want nothing to do with it. You you just sink on your own. Surprise me. Just thrill me, <laughs> or not. You know. So I was being kind of a putz, but, but uh, I, I thought it was great. And in relation to that, those those evenings at Joe's Pub that got recorded as Infinite Joy, were those well, he used, consciously structured? He or? Used, oh, they were very consciously, yeah, very consciously okay. structured. But he used he used those uh, he used Infinite Joy as kind of a, a template for for the piece. Though, though he, you know, there's been a lot of stuff written since then, so we had a lot of stuff to work with. Well, with Make Me a Song in Hartford, there was discussion that you might eventually bring it to New York for off-Broadway. Is, um, that, is yeah, that in the works? it seems people have interest in doing it, and I'd love to see it. It, it, it. I think it shows me off really well, and so whatever. And since I was asking about narrative, we also need to talk about elegies, which was a song cycle, not written specifically as a dramatic theater piece. What what was the, the impulse behind that? Well, f let me just tell you that elegies is being done at Joe's Pub um, December 17th because um, Oscar Eustace, who runs the public theater, is interested in doing it, and he's never seen it. He's only heard the record, so he wants to see see it with an audience. So that's we're doing that on that day. Um, but in terms of how you approached writing that and where that came from? Oh, I, I just... Hmm... Yeah, it it really happened. Oh, I'm not even going to go there. Um, it's all about these people. It brought out the best in me. I, you know, I just feel the writing in that is is so much better than any any other time I've written, and I have no idea why. But I I was writing about people I knew and loved, and uh, wanted other people to know and love and remember. And so I, I was just trying um, to create as vividly and specifically as I could these people for people who didn't know them. Bill, I wanted to also ask you, you teach at NYU. Uh, you mentioned your work with Rachel Scheinkin earlier. Uh, you're also involved in the TDF Open Doors program, which is bringing high schoolers to theater. When you... What what do you point out to people to look for in musicals? What are what are the things you try to guide people's attention to in either of these programs? Oh, I just think what music can do, what music and great lyrics can do, is make life richer. Um, 
you take a moment from life. You don't know it's great. You don't know it's as special as, as it is. Then you hear it sung. And all of a sudden, you you have goosebumps, and and everything, everything seems to have changed. The world seems a little different, and and and, and that's what I think musicals can do, um, which plays sometimes can't do as well. Well, Bill, we've been talking about your work to date, including Spelling Bee, which is currently running on Broadway. What are you doing now for the future? Are you working on anything currently, and what can we look forward? What to? I'm really doing is producing new new shows. Uh-huh. And um, and I because I teach, I know that there are enormously talented people out there, and I'm not seeing their plays being done. So what I'm trying to do is provide a venue for, for these new plays. In addition, uh, I'm I'm there as a producer to make sure that their visions are are getting on the stage. So basically. For the for the moment, anyway, what what I'm doing is concentrating on other people's work. Will we see more work from you in the future? Though, as a I composer, hope lyricist? so. Do you think? I hope Maybe? so. <laughs> Any ideas in the back of your head right now? Uh, not for you. Not for <laughs> for the radio. Not for public. Okay. On that note, Bill Finn, thank you so much for being thank with you. us today on Downstage Center. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Bill. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online on demand for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.